<clears throat> Moab seduces Israel. While Israel was staying at Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to, to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshipping the Baal of Peor and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, Each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshipping the Baal of Peor. Then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel, while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Finehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear through both of them, through the Israelite and into the woman's body. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped, but those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. The Lord said to Moses, Finehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites, for he was as zealous as I am for my honour among them, so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. Therefore tell him I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of, of a lasting priesthood, because he was zealous for the honour of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. The name of the Israelite who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, son of Salu, the leader of a Simeonite family. And the name of the Midianite woman who was put to death was Cosby, daughter of Zur, a tribal chief of a Midianite family. The Lord said to Moses, Treat the Midianites as enemies and kill them, because they treated you as enemies when they deceived you in the affair of Peor and their sister Cosby, the daughter of a Midianite leader, the woman who was killed when the plague came as a result of Peor. Thank, thank you, Kerry. I've prepared a sermon on that. It's still shocking to hear, isn't it? It's just... Anyway, um, thank you also to Damien. Um, Narelle and I share the excitement and feel the challenge of um, what we, as a leadership team, have put before you. And uh, just wanted to let you know some t um, that we have tried to help with the burden ourselves, just because uh, sometimes it seems like we're singing for our supper. Narelle and I evaluated our finances, thought about it, dug deep, thought about it again, dug deeper, dug deeper, dug deeper, and then said, okay, we're up for this amount. So we're with you, right? <laughs> okay, it's hurting, but we're with you. But it'll be good. Okay, uh, let's, let's pray. Our loving Father in heaven, thank you uh, for this. We want to say thank you for this shocking incident that happened, and you know, it was recorded, obviously, for, our, for something to teach us. So please help us, and help us to understand the relevance of it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. What else can you pray? All right. History has witnessed many falls from grace. Of course, it began with that initial humdinger. 
Adam and Eve, who ate the forbidden fruit and expelled from Eden. Through, of course, to most recently, the Richard Nixons, the Bill Clintons of last century, and the Lance Armstrongs and the Tiger Woods and the Brian Houstons of this century. The most spectacular falls come when someone thinks they're standing firm, like Hannibal the Conqueror. You don't know about Hannibal? Okay. Back in 200 BC, Hannibal decided to attack Rome. He thought he'd surprise the Romans by taking his army over the Italian Alps, which was never, ever been crossed before. So he didn't have a road, he didn't have a map, he didn't even have a track. And nevertheless, he set to it with an army of 50,000 men, 9,000 horses and 37 elephants. Unbelievably, he got through. Although not many people know that at the start of his descent, it was the beginning of winter, and the snow covered a slippery slope of ice and mud. And apparently, at a particular steep drop-off, the army came to a halt. Hannibal pushed his way through to the front and then accidentally slid all the way down the mountain with his walking staff in his hand at the bottom to prove to his army up there that he was standing firm and that the ground beneath the snow was solid he raised his staff and he slammed it hard into the snow and then he set off an avalanche that carried his whole army down the mountain. Two days it took to, for those who were still alive to dig themselves out. He'd lost half his men, all his horses and most of his elephants. He thought he was standing firm, but he fell and the same number of men perished as the number of Israelites who perished in our story today in the book of Numbers. Centuries after um, the Numbers event, the Apostle Paul would look back at um, that moment and say, if you think that you're standing firm, just be careful that you do not fall. Now last week, of course, if you are here, we had every reason to think that Israel was on firm ground We'd left the story at a literally high point on a mountain range far above Israel's camp. And what kept coming out in oracle after oracle from Balaam uh, was God's determination to bring blessing, not curse, and we saw through a conquering king who would come out of Israel, a star will rise from uh, Jacob. From that vantage point, things are looking pretty firm. But today, we see how far they fall. And the story is a shocker. We are shocked. I hope you're shocked. You're shocked, unless you've been, you've been watching too much television, if you're not shocked. Um, if we're shocked, we were shocked at the scale of the Israelite sin involving, it seems, most of the men. Unbelievable. We're shocked because it's a repeat of the sin of their parents with the golden calf. We're shocked at the heinousness of it. This generation's sin is worse than that of their parents who came out of Egypt. Yes, their parents bowed down to a golden calf, but here they are bowing down to a foreign god and joining in with the worship of those gods. And that's never happened before. And we're shocked at the immorality that that worship involves because it involved sex. We're shocked at the brazenness of it. 
were shocked at the severity of the Lord's reaction to it. His fierce anger, which almost wiped out the nation and has left the largest number of Israelites dead thus far in the book of Numbers. And then we're shocked at what Phineas does. We're shocked because in all of this, actually what we, look, what we see is a mirror of what we ourselves are capable of doing in different circumstances if God had not put the brakes on us and not, neither given us his spirit. This is human depravity factor, right? Unveiled. So in this, the last of our series in the book of Numbers, um, we're moving on after this, I want to try and draw together the twin messages of the book which we've seen again and again. Israel, after 40 years of wandering, is camped at their very last location before entering their promised land. And though they are so close to glory, we read in verse one, that the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods, and so Israel joined in in worshipping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. They were so close. The Lord had been so good to them. They should have learned from seeing what happened to their parents' generation who tested the Lord and perished in the wilderness, and yet here, the same sad tale repeats itself unbelievable. Well, God help us that we should make the same mistake, right? Well, that's why this story is here. So that by reflecting on it, God will help us. I take it that's his aim today. So how did the Israelites fall? Well, it wasn't by accident. Do you remember Balaam from last week? That would-be sorcerer come reluctant prophet of the Lord? He had his hand in this. He's not mentioned here in the chapter. Here it's the Israelites who are held responsible, but if we went to chapter 31 in the book of Numbers, when Israel takes vengeance on the Midianites by putting them to death, including Balaam, they also put to death the Midianite women, the ones who followed Balaam's advice and who were the means of turning the Israelites away from the Lord, back here in chapter 25. Jesus himself says the same in Revelation 2, where he says that Balaam taught... Balak, the Moabite king, to entice the Israelites by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. So you put together the other references to this incident in the Bible, and it seems that Balaam found another way to earn his retainer. Last week, the Lord had put a stop to him cursing the Israelites, but Balaam still wanted the money. So he devised another way to bring them down and he enticed them to turn from the Lord through that age-old Achilles heel. The promise of illicit sex with unknown women. Now this is a warning for all of us, I think, but particularly for we men. Not just men, but particularly for us. Because it has to be, doesn't it, one of Satan's main ways to bring down Christian men through sexual sin. And the temptation is strong when the woman is exotic, different, religious. Oh yes, perhaps a different religion, but she has a sense of spirituality about her. But it's a sin that will turn us away from God. 
This, men, is a warning. Sexual immorality, we know, destroys relationships, breaks up families, um, does untold damage to our wives and children, and it destroys, often, our relationship with the Lord. For the Israelites, this path was especially quick because sexual immorality was tied up with Baal worship. Baal was a Canaanite fertility god. So sowing one's oats was meant to ensure a good yield of crops. So by the Israelites indulging in sexual sin with Moabite women connected with Baal worship, they were immediately drawn in to worship Baal and abandon God. Uh, I want you to see, this isn't just a minor slip up in Israel's history. It was for that generation like the moment when their, their parents bowed down and worshiped the golden calf, but this, this is worse. They are now worshiping pagan gods through sex, which powerfully bonds themselves deeply to these gods right when they're about to go into the promised land. It's just awful. Because though, through redeeming them from Egypt, of course, the Lord had bonded himself already to them. He'd entered into relationship with them. And that meant that the Lord is jealous for them. And that's why the first commandment was the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And perhaps this helps us understand a little better his reaction in verse four where Moses goes to Israel's judges and he tells them to put to death the ringleaders who led the nation astray. There's mercy there. He doesn't put to death everyone. He says, just put to death the ringleaders. How merciful is that? But just when we read this, how does that sit with you, the reality of a Lord who grows fiercely angry? Because if we say, oh, it doesn't sit well, it's uncomfortable and I don't like it and I prefer to think of God as, do you see what you've just done? You've made up God in your image according to how you like him, not according to how he is. And that, I think, is idolatry, isn't it? And if we reject it out of hand, there's a danger. We actually will not see our objective need before God. I say objective because you can have an objective need but not be aware of it, can't you? You'd be, I don't know if you watch SBS um, you know, television online or whatever, uh, on demand, and there's an ad that keeps annoyingly come up, coming up about a guy who's, who gets his bowel cancer screening test, you know, and he's, he, he's just ignorant of the fact that he has bowel cancer. And he's, he's walking his dog and he's checking his mail and he looks pretty fit, and he's actually my age. Um, <laughs> and, um, but he's unaware that he's got undetected cancer, which left alone will kill him. You know, there are some mistakes which we can't afford to make and failing to understand our objective need before God is one of them. In Israel's case here, her problem was that her sin of defiantly turning her back on God has now angered the Lord. And they have an objective need. They need for the Lord's anger to be turned aside because unless that happens, it will engulf the whole land. Nation, And there's a need to act quickly because now in the story a plague is spreading amongst the Israelites. They're dropping like flies. The number of deaths is already in the thousands. What's to be done? God gives the solution. Take all the leaders of these people, kill them and expose them. Why? So that the Lord's fierce anger may turn from Israel. That's their need. This story 
awful though it is, it still speaks to us. It says our objective need outside of Christ and it tells us the solution. Our problem is that in our hearts, when we have turned against the Lord and given our hearts to someone else, we have angered him. And our objective need, whether we realize it or not, is not just that we be washed clean. It's not just that our sin be paid for because our offense against the Lord is personal, it's relational. We need his anger turned away or to use an old word, propitiated, turned aside. We need a propitiatory sacrifice, someone to be sacrificed in our place to turn away God's anger. In Israel's case, it's about to be her leaders because they represented the sinners. So here's Moses and all of Israel gathered before the tent of meeting. God tells Moses to put the leaders to death. Moses just finishes telling Israel's judges to carry out the punishment. You can imagine the moment the people are crying. Any sort of pretense that they might have had is over. They're now totally aware of their sin. They're totally aware of the cost in real human lives it's about to take. And at that moment, when you think things couldn't get any worse, what should happen but a bawdy young Israel Israelite buck walks right up in front of everyone, trailing this Midianite hottie. He parades her right in front before his very own family. He takes her into the tent, starts having it off with her right in front of the tent. Now, forgive me, I could have been more delicate, right? That would have missed the point. This is blatant, open, brazen, deliberate, conscious, depraved, arrogant, in your face, up yours God, sin of the highest hand. The son of an Israelite leader publicly coupling with the daughter of a Midianite chief at the very moment when the leaders of Israel are about to be executed for the very same sin just committed. And when Phineas the priest sees this, he is very zealous. He leaves the assembly of the Israelites, he picks up a spear, he marches straight into the tent and he drives the spear through the man and the woman as they're performing the act. My goodness gracious. He causes the plague of judgment sweeping throughout the Israelite community to stop. Miraculously, God's anger, his fierce anger, is turned away. But not before sin has reaped its consequences and 24,000 Israelites have died. The largest number of Israelites to be destroyed this far in the book. Now, I just want you to see in that figure just how real is the need of every person who has turned their backs on their creator to have the anger of the Lord turned away from them. Now, friends, whether we realize it or not, that's our objective need. It's my need. It's your need. And the good news is that it can be done. It was done for Israel. How was it done? This speaks to us. It was done through a zealous priest slaying representative sinners. For the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned, away, turned my anger away from the Israelites. For he was as zealous as I am for the on, my honor among them. 
so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. Verse 13, he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. God's anger was turned away, that's what atonement means, through the intervention of God's zealous priest Phineas, in which representative sinners were slain. Now, if you think about it, you can see quite quickly how this points us to Jesus, can't you? Jesus Christ, he is the zealous priest. You see, who could be a greater priest than the one who came to us from God as God in the flesh? I mean, a priest is that person who stands between God and us, and he's come from God in the flesh to be one of us. Who could be a greater priest than he? And who is more zealous for God than he? He who resisted every temptation, he who never sinned, though he was like one of us, he was one of us, he of whom it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Our great high priest. But who is also at the same time representative of sinners. He was the one who identified with us when he was baptized in the Jordan River. He didn't need to be baptized. John says, why, do you, why am I baptizing you? You need to be baptized, baptized me. I mean, it was sinners who got baptized. Jesus wasn't a sinner. He didn't need to get baptized. He said, let it be so. He identified with sinners. And then he was tested and tempted for 40 days, just as Israel has been tested and tempted in the desert for these 40 years. Jesus, he represents sinners. He made tax collectors and sinners his friends. One of us, right? Phineas achieved atonement by piercing the sinners with a spear. The zeal of Jesus was, as priest was greater because Jesus did what Phineas didn't, what Phineas couldn't do. He who was sinless, Jesus, offered himself. On that dark Friday 2,000 years ago, he offered himself as the representative sinner in the perfect sacrifice that would turn God's anger away once and for all. And that means it wasn't the sinner's body, of course, that was pierced, it was his own. He did it, friends, the zealous priest who was pierced for us because he represented us. Four times in the New Testament, Jesus' death is described in these terms as an atoning or a propitiatory sacrifice. That means a sacrifice that turned away God's anger, meaning that for those whom God's arms embraced, the plague of judgment has been stopped. Okay? The gates of God's grace are now open so that for those who put our trust in him, we can be sure our objective problem of God's anger against us has been fully resolved. This is wonderful, isn't it, right? And I wish that every person would see it as wonderful. And I'm not just talking about non-Christians here. I wish that every Christian would see this as wonderful. And I'm not just talking about people who are different to me. I'm talking about me. I wish that I'd see it was wonderful. Because the sad thing about human sinfulness, of course, which we continue to battle with, is that the, sometimes the very people who ought to be the most appreciative, we ourselves, guess what? Sometimes in our hearts, we still turn our backs on the Lord, don't we? Um, I'll tell you how it works for me. In my worst moments, this is my worst moments, a little assumption 
comes into the back of my mind, which goes like this. It says, because Jesus has atoned for all my sins and has turned God's anger away from me now, now there's nothing that I will do that will arouse God's anger and therefore, little voice says, you're free to sin as you wish. Now, I don't think I'm so crass as to think that out loud in the front of my head, (laughs) to articulate it. But I'll tell you what, when the thought enters my head about indulging a little sin or a temptation, I think that's the assumption that's operating, isn't it? Has that ever happened to you? Do you know at that point we're no better than the Israelites? And the New Testament calls that turning the grace of God into a license for immorality. I wanna say as clearly as I can that sexual immorality is not an option for people who are Christians. Um, And I want to be very clear about what sexual immorality is. Uh, It's not the word adultery, uh, although it includes that. Adultery is, of course, uh, a married couple who break faith with their spouse and then have sexual relationships with another person outside their marriage. Sexual immorality is bigger than that because it includes people who aren't married uh, having sexual relationships with anyone else. all sex outside of marriage. Uh, The Bible is very clear, the marriage bed is to be kept pure before marriage, when we're married, if we are, and after marriage. It is to be kept pure for Christ's sake and for our sakes. Why? Is it because God's a killjoy? (laughs) No. Does he think sex is dirty? You know, Adam and Eve were at it in the garden. Stop that, that's dirty. No. It's because sex is such a wonderful and powerful gift from the Lord as as our creator that in the right context, of course, it is designed to knit a husband and wife together, to create one, oneness in marriage. And that glue, which is so powerful in its wrong context, when it just keeps ripping apart, destroys relationships and damages our souls and hardens us and deceives us and takes us away from Christ. I'll tell you a story. I remember early um, in my ministry training, I was in Newcastle, uh, north of Sydney, and we were doing, I was doing student work and I had to say, find the Christians in that college and work out how to do something with them. Okay, I'd heard that there was a girl who was a Christian and I went and found out where she was and I knocked on her door and uh, thought she'd come and be part of our group. Knock, knock, come in. I opened the door and then found her in bed with a bloke. Well, there's an awkward moment. So I just looked at my shoes. I mumbled something about Bible study. (laughs) And I just got out of there as soon as I could. Funnily enough, we never saw her again. Now, persistent sexual immorality was bad enough for the Israelites But if we've had our sins already dealt with in advance, for us to do what they did would be far worse. Okay, that would be sinning against God in a high-handed, brazen way, right? If we deliberately turn our backs on God in a moment of defiant rebellion and make light of his grace, if we then continue down that path, right, having left God behind, 
but still believing everything will be right between God and us because after all, Jesus died for us, didn't he, once and for all? If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received knowledge of the truth, if we do not repent, the writer to the Hebrews says, no sacrifice, I don't think that's the right one, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. The final word from God to us from the book of Numbers is really two messages um, which we've seen over and over again. And uh, these are the two themes that come out. The first of all is a warning, right? Be warned. The Apostle Paul reflects on this moment in the book of Numbers and in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 he warns us, if you think you're standing firm, just be careful that you do not fall. You know, it's when we think that could never happen to me, I would never do that. When we think we're immune, that's when we're at our weakest. So Paul says, be warned. He says, guess what? These Israelite failings in the book of Numbers, the reason why we have them, the reason why we've done a whole series on them, they occurred as examples to us to keep us from setting our hearts on the things that they did. He says, we're not to be idolaters as some of them were, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day, 23,000 of them died. Now, it's not just sex, it's, in, it's setting your heart. <laughs> it's what it does to your heart. It's possible to disguise illicit sex, I think, with a pretense of worship and think, oh no, this is, you know, okay with God. We can do the same with money, of course. We can think that we can love God and we can love money in equal measure. Jesus says, you can't, so don't try. Or you could take any good gift that God has given us, any good gift, and then inflate it over God and commit idolatry. And you know, even if I tread on sacred ground here and just even mention that great sacred cow in our culture, Family time. Because what could be more wholesome than quality time with my family, right? Even that good gift can become an idol if you put it ahead of the Lord. God says we should not test the Lord, uh, Paul says we should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples, guess what, and were written down as warnings for us. That's why we have the book of Numbers, on whom the fulfillments of the ages have come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. So have you heard it? Be warned. Turning our back on God at the very least could lead to God's severe discipline. At worst, it could take us away from Christ. Now, I know that there'll be someone here who's thinking, oh, but where's my assurance? You've just robbed me of my assurance. Our assurance, of course, is Jesus who has turned away God's anger and it is the Lord's Spirit who enables us to walk with him. It is, in other words, the internalizing of the external reality we saw in the book of Numbers. Remember in the book of Numbers, God was with the Israelites, guiding them, leading them, with them, traveling with them through the desert in that column of fire. 
And then Pentecost happened and that fire came upon people and the Spirit comes within all who believe and now God is with us, with us. Okay. The deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, God traveling with us. Why does God then warn us? Because guess what? It's through warning. That's how God keeps us safe. Parents do this all the time. Don't put your hand near the fire. You will be burnt. How, do, how does a, a parent enable their child not to be burnt? By warning them. Okay, that's how they're showing love. Is the warning hypothetical? No, it's very real. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. Peter says, Be on your guard so that you may not be carried away and fall from your secure position. <laughs> right? So our position is secure. Christ has made it so, but we're warned to be on our guard lest we fall from it. Okay. Now, don't spend your time thinking, I can ignore the warning if my position is secure, because guess what? If you stick your hand in the fire, you will be burnt. So hear the warning. But also, I want you to then hear the other side of the book of Numbers, and that is to hear the assurance. If you have been guilty of turning your back on God in the past, and maybe that's through sexual sin, and God in his grace has brought you to repentance as he did with the Israelites, I want you to hear the word of assurance. That the anger that God had against you for your sin has been turned away by Jesus, God's zealous priest, who himself was pierced in your place as your representative. It is in the cross that your assurance lies. And then there's that extra assurance in moments of future temptation. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you except what's common to man. And guess what? God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So, conclusion, flee from idolatry. How do we know we'll make it? Our assurance is the cross. God's spirit with us, God's ongoing faithfulness to us in times of temptation. What must we do? Believe it and heed the warnings. Father in heaven, thank you for Christ who turned away your anger. Thank you for these warnings in the book of Numbers. Thank you for the ongoing presence of your spirit. Father, keep us, keep us walking with you in fellowship with you, enthroning Christ as Lord in our hearts every day and banishing from ourselves any idolatry as it emerges in Jesus' name. Amen. We are just about to have a time of confession where we confess together. You know, if you know the Saviour, you know the joy of confession. And if we get to this part of the service and you think, I don't, why do we need to do this confession thing? I think that might be a reason to pray that God would reveal to us why we need to confess. Because confession is about acknowledging who God is and it's about acknowledging who we are and it's about acknowledging the fact that God has done something to bridge that gap. And confession really is the first step in being a Christian. In fact, if we don't confess, I would say that we aren't saved.
So we come to this point in the service which is actually fundamentally important. A verse before we start and speak this prayer together. The lamp of the Lord searches the spirit of a person. It searches out his inmost being. Let's say these words together next. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of redemption in the Bible. Thank you that through it we see our need for redemption from our ignorance in thinking our way is best, from our blindness in seeing a better way than your way, from the deception of following Satan without realizing it, from our guilt for sins committed, from the endless cycle of sinning again and again, from our slavery to sin, from your judgment so rightly deserved, but terrifying to contemplate. Thank you that when the time was right, you sent your son, born as one of us, born under law, but who died to pay the price to redeem us from all of sin's guilt and all of sin's curse, that we might receive the full rights as sons. In Jesus' name, Forgive us, merciful Father, and help us to live as your restored children, faithful and thankful with Jesus Christ as the Lord. Amen. And this promise of scripture, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen to that. And we're just going to invite Carolyn to come up and share briefly with us before Anton leads us in a time of prayer. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. I just wanted to ask um, if you would be in prayer for our family and for Miriam in particular. About 18 months ago, I'll just take a breath. Through the kind vigilance of Sarah Torchinovich, Miriam was diagnosed with um, adolescent scoliosis and her beautiful princess back turned into a bit of a question mark shape uh, and she was um, had a, like a 45 degree angle. Uh, in March this year, we went on the public hospital waiting list for spinal uh, surgery when she got to about 50 degrees. Uh, in August, we had another x-ray, which showed that she has uh, now a 70 degree angle. And we were fortunate to be given uh, a surgery date on October the 4th, which is coming up very soon. Uh, Miriam is delighted that overnight she will grow three centimetres taller. <laughs> so I need to measure her before and afterwards. Um, spinal fusion surgery is the gold standard and it's been around for a long time, uh, but they do drill metal rods into either, either side of her spine. Uh, so uh, she will need to be off uh, school for six weeks and then return at sort of half days. Uh, so you can imagine that that's going to be quite logistically challenging. Uh, so we seek your prayers um, for great care and precision and skill for the surgeons, anaesthetists and nurses looking after her. I just pray for her recovery um, at home for those six weeks and for a gradual return to school. Um, we pray 
that she won't have complications from that surgery. And I'm thankful for my mum and dad who are here from Sydney over this um, immediate period of time, but uh, the logistics of caring for her will continue for a quite a period. Um, I believe that we'll be setting up a WhatsApp group so that I can communicate quickly with people who would like to pray. And Anton, over to you. Uh, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending us a perfect zealous priest in Jesus and the reminder of the importance of obedience to your commandments and consequences from straying from your path. We pray for strength to resist temptation and remain faithful to you. Help us to be on guard and may we learn from the mistakes of the Israelites and strive to be bonded to you and live in accordance with your will. Grant us a discernment to recognise the dangers of idolatry and immorality and the courage to stand firm in you. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful outcome for Eva Kemp, who has experienced an answering of many prayers. We praise you for her recovery and restoration, but Lord, we humbly ask for your continued presence and healing touch to be with her. Grant her strength, courage, and peace during this challenging time. We also lift up Gemma Closey and her family to you, Lord. We eagerly await the gift of healing in their lives and grant them patience as they wait for your perfect timing. We pray for Adrian Watke as he recovers from eye surgery. We ask for your healing to protect his vision and grant him patience during the slow recovery phase. May he find solace in your love and grace. And Lord, importantly, we bring before you Miriam Early, who is facing major surgery on her spine for scoliosis. We pray for calm nerves for Miriam and her family and skillful guidance for her surgeon. We entrust her into your hands, knowing you are the ultimate healer. Lord, we thank you for providing us uh, an associate pastor for 2024. We give you thanks for Mitch and his family. Make us a congregation that is willing to be open, loving and supportive of the Duns as they prepare to make the move from Sydney. We praise you for the university students in our network who participated in Jesus Week. We are grateful for the opportunities to spread the gospel on campuses and may your spirit continue to draw people to you uh, through their efforts. Lord, we bring before you the recent Network uh, Board Recovery Day at Trinity. We pray for wisdom, prayerfulness and insight for the board members as they discern the direction of our network over the next five to ten years. And we pray for the lead pastors as they minister and support the Trinity Network senior pastors. May they provide valuable guidance in shaping the future of this network. Lastly, Lord, we thank you for those that attended CV Conference this weekend. We pray that CV Conference was a time of reflection and discernment for those considering vocational ministry, and that CV may raise up more gospel workers for your divine purposes. Lord, we offer these prayers with faith in your unwavering love and power. We trust that you hear our petitions and answer them according to your perfect will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. just about to have our final song isn't it amazing to be part of a church family to kind of support each other and care for each other and to kind of face challenges together but also celebrate joys together so if you're not part of this church family could become a part it's great let's stand together and sing this final song which is going to draw together um sorry the things that we've been 
uh, listening to and, and we can celebrate this in song together.
great thing that we can be washed whiter than snow. Uh, next week we are, change your clocks next week, yep, we're doing Amos next week. Um, let justice roll down we're looking at. And um, one last quick notice, last night the women had a swap till you drop event, which apparently was really good, but unfortunately they dropped before they swapped, I think. Out in the foyer, there's a whole lot of other stuff. You know what I reckon happens? Christians get really generous and they give lots, and then when they go to take something, they don't take as much. But it all needs to go. So swap and then go, don't drop. Okay, um, there's a verse I'm sure coming. Yeah, it's gonna be like a sending out thing. Here we go, I'll say this for us all. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. And amen to that too. <laughs>